Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. Here's your host, Dr. D. Richard Ferguson. Have you ever noticed how much force vows carry? So often we'll hear a sermon or something and we'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that from now on. But if someone pressed you to make a formal commitment, you might hesitate. You find out how serious you really are about something when you're faced with a vow. At the end of today's episode, I'll suggest a vow you can take regarding your role in the church. So listen carefully, because no vow should ever be taken lightly. Is any one of you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? Let him call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We are commanded to call the elders of the church to come to your house. Don't wait around for the elders to come knocking on your door. Or anyone else for that matter. Ask. <laughs> ask. It just drives me crazy when people don't ask, you know, and then they wonder why it doesn't come. People will leave the church, you know, disappear. They just disappear from the family. And then after a while, they complain because nobody seems to notice that they left. Whenever I hear that, I just think, during the time when you're gone, where you're doing this test to see if everyone, anyone notices, what if someone else is gone too during the, what if someone else is missing from the church? What if someone's missing from your prayer group during those same weeks that you're gone? You didn't notice that they're gone. Why is it that everyone in the church has a responsibility to keep track of you, but you don't have the responsibility to keep track of them? Listen, if you want someone to notice you're gone, call them up. Say, hey, I've been gone. <laughs> the Bible says to Go after the strays. I mean, we are supposed to go after the strays, but the Bible never tells the sheep to go ahead and stray just to test to see if the shepherds are on their toes. <laughs> so James gives us just a revolutionary new idea here. If you need a visit, ask for a visit. Pick up the phone and say, hey, I need a visit. And don't use an excuse Oh, elders are so busy. Daryl's studying. He's busy. He doesn't know. These guys are all busy. I don't. Or uh, I can't do that. I'm a nobody in this church. I I'm not. I don't have the standing. To, I'm not important enough to be so bold as to contact the elders and say they need to come to my house. And there's a Greek word for that: hogwashikos. <laughs> okay, that is baloney. None of the, nothing in this passage is tied to your prominence, the sick person's prominence in the church. Nothing. That's not here. It's just sick. The only thing you need to be qualified to be able to summon the elders to come to your house is sick. Just get sick. Right? Just be weak. Need help. That's all you, again, we're a family. We're a family. Sick child. In your house, he doesn't have to have any certain seniority or prominence or anything in the family to be able to call out from his bedroom and say, Mom, come help me, please. I'm sick. I'm really sick. Mom doesn't say, you're not old enough to be asking for you know me to come to your room. No. So call us. 
call us and we'll come and we'll put a dab of oil on your head as a symbol and, and we'll do that to remind you and us that this is a serious, special, symbolic act to bring refreshment and renewal and healing from the Lord. And we'll do all that in the name of the Lord. That's important. That part's important. We don't want to do it in any way to give the impression that there's some special power coming from the elders. You know, this whole thing is in the name. I think that's the point of the oil and the point of the in the name of the Lord. It all points to the Lord. Uh, if there's going to be any healing power, it's going to be clear that it's coming from God. Which means when we try to refresh you spiritually, we try to encourage you spiritually. That's going to have to come from God too. We're not going to use human means to do that. We're not going to come and try and tell you jokes or give you some psychotropic drugs or you know some psychological technique to cheer you up. Our method will be to give you encouraging truths from the Word of God, so that when it works, guess who will get the credit and the glory? God will. One other thought about the uh, anointing, this, the, what it symbolizes. It might also symbolize dedicating that person to God. Sometimes the word was used that way, like in the Old Testament, dedicating priests by the anointing. Uh, also in Second Corinthians one twenty one, it says, He anointed us and set His seal of ownership on us and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So it may be that this is also a way of just taking this sick person and just dedicating the person to God. You're saying, oh, Lord, this person is looking to you. He's repented of his sins. He's looking to you as his source of help. And he's doing it in your prescribed way. And so we now, as your elders, as your under-shepherds, now place him in your hands so that you would restore soundness and health to his body and soul. Um. Don't think that the anointing is unimportant just because it's symbolic. Right? Symbols are important. We need them. We need reminders. We always try to remember the, the cross all the time, right? But there's something about a physical reminder in communion that helps us do that. It just impresses it on our hearts in a greater way. Same thing with baptism. Before you get baptized, you already understand all the principles about uh, being cleansed and being buried with Christ and raised with Christ. You understand all that, but when you actually physically, your body gets submerged in water in front of the whole, the whole church, that, there's, that is a way of driving those principles deep down into your understanding. And so we need symbols. So we often pray for healing all the time, but when, the, when, when, when it's one of these situations, these special situations where you're going to call the elders to come to your house and pray over you, God wants that. He wants us to take that seriously. He wants it to be a special thing. Where, so he gives us this formal procedure to solemnize it and to, uh, to mark in our minds these principles so that we don't forget them. And as we go a little further in the text, we'll see this isn't just your average ordinary praying for healing. This is something very special. Okay, take a look at verse 15. He says the Lord will raise them up, and the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. Does that sound to you uh, like a 100% success promise? Like, this will work. He'll be healed. Kind of sounds that way to me, but if that's the case, why? how do we explain sickness in the church? In the New Testament church, 
Why did Paul leave Trophimus sick at Miletus? Why did Paul let Epaphroditus get so sick that he almost died? Didn't Paul read James 5? Why didn't he just call the elders of the church, anoint him with oil, and then problem solved? And what is this prayer of faith that James mentions? Is that just a normal prayer uh, that's, uh, where you trust God, or is there something special about the prayer of faith? And what is the role of confession of sin? Why does he focus on that in verse 16? And if Elijah was a man just like us, why, why do his prayers raise the dead and control the weather and my prayers can't even get a green light to last a few extra seconds? And if God has his sovereign plan already, and he doesn't change, he's written everything in his book before one of us was born, and that's unchangeable, how could prayer possibly affect anything? And what can you do to make your prayers more powerful? Those are the points where we're going to try to pick it up next time. But for now, let me close with this. This passage is just one of the countless places in Scripture where it's just assumed that you're a member of a church. It's just, I mean, the Bible just always assumes it. It doesn't say, is any one of you sick? If you happen to be a member of a church, try calling the elders. It doesn't say that. James just uh, just assumed, if you're a believer, you've got some elders whose phone number you have. Right? That's assumed. You know them. They know you. If you call them, they will come. People who leave the church, you know, they just get tired of all the difficulty that's associated with worshiping with a bunch of sinners, and so they bail out of the family. They've got a million excuses for why it's okay, you know. They've got it all figured out. They got, they, I'm reasonable and on my own, and I've got the Holy Spirit in my heart, and I, I've got songs on my iPod, sermons online, and I, why do I need to go to some building somewhere with, filled with a bunch of hypocrites and, you know, phonies that do nothing but hurt me and disappoint me all the time? Or, or how about this one? Look, uh, we're our own church. You know, we're meeting in a house. I got my family and a friend that comes, comes over, and it's, it's it's a house church. You know, and we're, we're a church. We're just, uh, you know, Jesus said it, didn't he? Where there are two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. So we're a church, right? We got two or three, right? Wrong, wrong. That's not what that passage says. Matthew eighteen, the two or three are gathered in his name. If you look at the context, it's the two or three witnesses in a church discipline situation who go to the person, and if he doesn't repent, those two or three are to report to the church, which means they're not the church, right? The very passage people use to prove that is disproves it. If you don't have enough people to do church discipline, you're not a church. And, and if you don't have a group of men who are called by God to serve in pastoral ministry, and that calling is validated by the body of Christ who found those men to be qualified by, uh, uh, by those qualifications in Scripture, you don't have that. You're missing a key ingredient, ingredient for it being a church. Now, I'm telling you this because, now, I, I know, anytime I preach about coming to church, I'm always, by definition, preaching to the choir because the only people that hear it are people that came to church. I get that, but but the, the day may come when you're going to be tempted. When this family hurts you so badly, disappoints you so much, fails you so egregiously, the day may come where you might be tempted to run away from home spiritually. 
And, or it might happen because you get into sin and you're just so ashamed and you feel so unworthy. You say, I can't show my, I can't approach God. I can't go to church. And you just, you're just bogged down with sin. Or maybe you, 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 you drag down spiritually enough to where you're just not interested in church anymore. You really don't want to be around the people of God. You'd rather be around the world. Or you redefine church so that you can avoid the hard parts. When that happens, that temptation comes, you need to give yourself the same speech that you would give a 12-year-old who wants to run away from home. You don't, you don't want to be out there in the world. Why, why do that? Why voluntarily excommunicate yourself? That's not good. Being a, that's what we do to people when they're under discipline. You don't want to run away from the flock. It doesn't go well for sheep without a shepherd. Lone rangers are dead rangers. So, so everywhere you look in the New Testament, it's always assumed that you're fully committed to a local body of believers and you're under the spiritual care of elders. And so, I'm wondering if it would be a good idea for all of us to remind ourselves of that, of those responsibilities to one another in a formal way, with a church covenant before the temptation, day of temptation comes. Now, we've not done a, a, a congregational or a, a membership covenant before, and there's, there's pros and cons to having formalized uh, membership in the church. Um, one of the cons, one of the reasons why we haven't done it, is because the more you formalize the membership process and you have requirements for becoming a member, the more you create the situation where whoever doesn't do the requirements is a non-member. So you get members and non-members. That's not biblical. We don't believe in non-membership. So... That's one, that's one of the cons. One's the reason we, we haven't done it. But, but there are some pros to more formalized membership. And maybe the biggest one is having a membership covenant accomplishes the same thing as having wedding vows, right? A couple getting married, they know they're supposed to be faithful and all that. But there's something special about vowing that before God and witnesses that makes it a solemn, special, formal thing. If we did that with our responsibilities to one another in the church, um, we could be reminded in a serious way of what what God calls us to do. So I'm curious. If you look in your bulletin, there is um, a, a, a church covenant in there that we've come up with, um, a membership covenant. And I'm curious how many of you would be willing to sign that. It's also in the, in the if you don't have a bulletin, it's in the, the sermon manuscript in the appendix. We would like you to take that home and read it very carefully. And pray to God about whether he would have you sign that thing. If this is a covenant that you're willing to make with God, between you and God, to let us know. We'd like to, we'd like you to let us know if you would sign that. And if not, if you wouldn't sign it, we'd be very interested to know why. If, if there's something in there you don't agree with, you say that's not biblical or, uh, you know, uh, it's designed so that there's, there should be nothing in there that's beyond what scripture calls you to do. Um, or if there's something wrong with the wording, or you don't want to make that kind of commitment, maybe, or whatever. Um, but whatever you think of the idea of making a formal commitment to God, uh, we, we just like to know your feedback on that. But whatever you think about that, make sure you understand this. I want to remind you of two things. First, your responsibility to the family of God. When you read that, let it remind you of the gravity of your responsibility to the church, number one. And number two, be reminded of the tender 
compassionate love that the Lord Jesus Christ shows you through the hands and feet of the shepherds that he's placed over you and through all your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the way that you shepherd us. Oh Lord, there's a reason why the 23rd Psalm throughout the centuries has been our favorite. We love you as our shepherd. And we want to pass along that care and love to one another. Teach us, Lord, to be good members of your household. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Is something holding you back from greater involvement in the church? If so, what is it? The document I just described is in today's show notes, but I'd like to wrap up today by making that covenant into a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, having received your Son, Jesus Christ, through faith as the Lord, Savior, and supreme treasure of my life so that I trust Him more than I trust myself, and having declared that through baptism, I do now, in the presence of your holy angels, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with you concerning your commandments regarding my responsibilities to your people. I covenant to submit to the authority of Scripture as the final arbiter in all disagreements, and to strive by your grace to carry out both giving and receiving the one another commands in Scripture, to pursue, to seek hard after closeness with you through regular prayer, meditation on Scripture, and fellowship, to regularly participate in family life at church, attending weekly services and some group where I can build close relationships, and serving in ministry, washing the feet of the saints as a steward of the grace that flows through my spiritual gift, to steward the resources you've given me, including time, talents, spiritual gifts, and finances, this includes regular financial giving of my first fruits to you, and service, participation in community that is sacrificial, cheerful, and voluntary. By your grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I commit to strive for holiness in all areas of life as an act of worship to Jesus Christ. When there is an ongoing struggle, I will seek help through discipleship or counseling. This includes striving to maintain sexual purity, no sexual interaction of any kind with anyone but my spouse, avoiding drunkenness or getting high, illegal activities, dishonesty, selfishness, and pride. I will strive to guard the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, refusing to look down on or grumble against the leadership, other members, or circumstances. I'll strive to be patient with others, assuming the best motives, and immediately forgiving those who repent. And I will make reconciliation of broken relationships an urgent priority. As soon as I discover someone has something against me, or when I have something against someone I, I can't overlook, I will follow the steps of restoration in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. When I can't resolve a dispute, I will take it before the church for help. I will honor the marriage covenant, strive to fulfill my marital role as husband or wife, 
and to bring up our children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Before ever considering divorce, I agree to walk through the steps of marriage reconciliation at church and will obey the scriptures on this subject. By your grace, I will be willing to set aside freedoms that cause others to stumble and to avoid activities that hinder my walk with you. I'll strive to do the following when I sin. First, confess my sin to you and to those I sinned against, and then to repent and seek help to put my sin to death. I will submit both in action and attitude to the elders and appointed leaders of the church. And if I leave the church, I will first do all I can to resolve any conflicts and discuss my reasons with an elder, notify ministry leaders in areas of ministry where I am serving so they can prepare to replace me, and when possible, help train replacements in my ministry before leaving, and to immediately seek another church with which I can carry out my biblical responsibilities as a believer. Help me remember these commitments and give me the grace to carry them out. Thank you for listening. If you found today's episode edifying, why not share it with a friend? This season of the Food for Your Soul podcast features excerpts from our sermon series on the book of James. 50 expository sermons covering every verse. You can find those and hundreds of other sermons for free download on drichardferguson.com. And if you like listening on your phone, get our free mobile app. Install the Church One app from the Play Store and select Food for Your Soul. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.